the song Grace, performed by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Gay Men's Choruses got their start in the 1970s in San Francisco, and they quickly caught on nationally. Soon other major cities boasted their own Gay Men's Choruses. But then, in 1982, the AIDS epidemic hit. And the surviving chorus members were being sent out to take care of sick members, being sent out to sing at memorial services, but it's happening at a rate where, you know, you're sending small groups out to take care of everybody and sing at these memorials. And so the impact of the AIDS epidemic was astounding and profound. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, building brotherhood through song and sport. Kevin Schottenkirk Harbaugh is a longtime member of a gay men's chorus. He says it was one of the first spaces where he truly felt he belonged. Kevin is an ethnomusicologist and music historian at Longwood University. A note to listeners, this interview contains discussion of suicide. Kevin, you joined the Seattle Men's Chorus in 2008 after attending one of their shows. Were you nervous? I was. I had sung in other community choirs before, but they weren't gay-specific or LGBT-specific. And so I was excited to join a chorus with people who were just like me and was also nervous at the same time because Seattle had such a great reputation for being such a great performance group. When you were sitting in the audience and seeing them perform before you had joined, what made you think, I want to be part of that? Oh, it was a lot of fun to watch their show. (laughs) It was in June 2008, and they had a guest artist, the late Leslie Jordan, and he was absolutely hilarious and had the audience in stitches, and the chorus very clearly was having fun, and I just thought, I need to be a part of that. What did being part of that chorus do for you personally? It was really good for fostering my own sense of community, uh, my my feeling like I belonged <laughs> with my own people, if you will. I think that shared identity also kind of translates to having shared experiences. Many of us have gone through similar situations, having lost family or friends because we came out, but also creating a new family with friends that we meet in the choruses. And you'll see that it's very common that many chorus singers think of their choruses as their family. And in fact, you'll actually hear many singers refer to the choruses as their chorus family. Can you share any of the other stories of men that you sang with who who took special meaning from joining the chorus? Uh, yes, there were definitely a handful of singers that I had met that had needed to join choruses because they had grown up in family situations where they just could not come out. And when they did, usually later in life, they were shunned to various degrees. And so joining the chorus uh, was a matter of finding a place where they could be accepted and could be loved for who they are. When did gay men's choruses get their start, would you say? Oh, this history is fascinating. We tend to think of the start as 1978 with San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, and they emerged around the same time that Harvey Milk was really at kind of the peak of his powers in San Francisco on the City Board of Supervisors. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay publicly elected official, and he served on the San Francisco City Board of Supervisors all too briefly, about 11 months before he was assassinated in November of 1978. Well, the month before that, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus formed because they were inspired by Harvey Milk's iconic 
Gay Freedom Day speech. Uh, Gay Freedom Day would be pride, essentially. And there were some members who were really inspired by what he had to say at that event and decided to form the chorus. And there were a few other groups, LGBT-specific ensembles that had formed in the years before. But what we know is that San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was the first ensemble to actually use the word gay in their name. And then did gay men's chorus groups form in other large cities? Oh, yes. Uh, Seattle was one of the first to form in the wake of San Francisco and Boston in 1982. And that was a result of San Francisco gay men's chorus touring the country performing in Boston, and then some guys walking out of the show saying, you know what, we really need this here. And then, of course, in 1982, the choruses that were around at that time had joined in with San Francisco to form the Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses, or as we refer to to them as GALA, which is an international umbrella organization for LGBT choruses. How does the history of gay men's choirs do you think, intersect with the devastating AIDS epidemic? Oh, my goodness. Very much so. They kind of started with a jolt of inspiration with Harvey Milk and then had to endure his untimely assassination in 1978, right? So right at their inception. But by all accounts, it seems like that period of time between 1978 uh, and 1982 was a period of incredible progress and empowerment, these choruses forming throughout the country. And then in 1982, the AIDS epidemic hits. And it really does not let up for another 15 to possibly 18 years But the impact was devastating. And one of the things that I found in my research, talking with singers, especially singers my age or older, was to hear about how the AIDS epidemic created essentially a generation gap between older singers and younger singers. And the generation or two in between was just getting wiped out. It gives me chills. Yeah, yeah, it is it is very chilling. And I'm of that generation that wasn't directly impacted by it. I was in elementary, middle, high school in the 1980s and early 90s, and it certainly impacted my generation in a different way. But I think what was really difficult for singers older than me was to turn up to rehearsal, hear about who was sick, hear about who was sick at home, who was in hospice, who had died, and to be subjected to this for years of just continued illness and death. And the surviving chorus members are being sent out to take care of sick members, being sent out to sing at memorial services, but it's happening at a rate where, you know, you're sending small groups out to take care of everybody and sing at these memorials. And they're being spread thin because they're also trying to be a performing arts organization. And they're also trying to be a safe place for other gay people. And so the impact of the AIDS epidemic was just astounding and profound. There's a song you've written about called Testimony by Stephen Schwartz who also created the musical Wicked. Tell me about the importance of the song, Testimony. Oh, yes. Um, Testimony was one of those interesting instances where, from what I understand, was a piece that wasn't commissioned by the chorus, but rather it was given to San Francisco as a gift. It debuted in 2012, in San Francisco. And so we're talking about the years shortly after the death of somebody like Tyler Clementi, the student in New Jersey who had jumped off of a bridge after he had been sort of bullied by a roommate on campus. And there were a whole spate of suicides among LGBT youth in the couple of years before that. So Stephen Schwartz, 
constructed testimony by watching videos from the It Gets Better campaign, which started on YouTube by the advice columnist Dan Savage and his husband, Terry Miller. And Schwartz was given permission to draw lines from various videos and basically created the lyrics for the song out of all of these different videos, you know, of these LGBT people sharing all of their experiences. And it starts off a little bit dark. We think we're hearing a story about somebody who's really struggling with suicidal thoughts and and suicidal ideation. And then around the middle of the song, the mood shifts and we realize that this is an adult reflecting on their own experience and having come through it and having come into a happier, healthier life as an out adult. Have you performed the song testimony? Oh my gosh, yes, twice. (laughs) And um, it was very different when I was examining it as a doctoral student, where it's easier to sit back and kind of take notes and be a little bit, you know, I I don't want to say emotionally removed, but observing how the piece of music is impacting the, the people who are rehearsing it and performing it. But it's a very different experience stepping on stage and singing those words and being really reflective about my own experience as a gay man and having certain lines resonate in ways that, I mean, these were lyrics that I was very deeply familiar with. And I'm singing them and as a performer, I'm having to lip sync certain lines because if I verbalize it, I'm going to bust out into tears. (laughs) And so... Yeah, it's incredibly moving. And then you walk off stage with the 200 plus singers that you were just singing it with. And somehow it's created this bond between everybody because we can all relate to it in some way. I can just imagine that. And it must be so powerful to sing beautifully and richly shoulder to shoulder with so many people sharing a very specific kind of experience, right? Yes, exactly. That nails it. In the rehearsal process, you know, everybody kind of arrives and we're having fun. We're about to start singing. We're going to rehearse with our friends. And we might be rehearsing this hard, difficult music that can be very intimately personal to various extents and might reduce us to tears. But then when you get up on stage and you actually share those stories with an audience, it can be an incredible bonding experience. Kevin, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Before we go, would you please introduce a portion of the song you mentioned earlier, Testimony by Stephen Schwartz? And this version is performed by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Oh, yes. This is the portion of the song where we realize we're hearing from an adult who got through a period of time in which they struggled with uh, suicidal ideation. And now they've reached a happier, healthier point in their life as an out adult.
My interview was with Kevin Schottenkirk Harbaugh. He's an ethnomusicologist and music historian at Longwood University. My next guest embedded himself in a community of Latino immigrants who played park soccer in West Los Angeles. The soccer field was a place where these men could bond, share work experiences, and blow off steam. But then the surrounding white neighborhood started to take notice. David Truey is the author of Football in the Park, Immigrants, Soccer, and the Creation of Social Ties. He's a sociology professor at James Madison University. David, you were a graduate student when you first took notice of the park. What had first caught your eye? Um, Our professor told us about a soccer field in his neighborhood that was drawing some uh, concerns and some conflict from uh, his neighbors. And uh, he saw it because when this new field was built, it drew in a lot of working class Latino immigrants. And uh, he felt that a lot of his neighbors were upset about this, were primarily white and uh, more affluent. And he actually brought in a flyer that was put on his uh, windshield, listing all of these pretty wild complaints and grievances about the field. And uh, I was interested. I was kind of interested in local politics and community dynamics. And uh, so I went down to kind of learn about this conflict, but my attention quickly gravitated to these midday pickup soccer games. What's the name of the park and what are the neighborhoods surrounding it? Yes, so the park is in West Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Mar Vista, surrounded by, uh, you know, nearby Santa Monica, Marina del Rey, Culver City. But the, the area also draws in a lot of Latino immigrants, most of whom come in to work in these neighborhoods as uh, gardeners, construction workers, cleaners, uh, domestic workers, and, and so on. And uh, so there is a, a heavy Latino presence, of course, as well in this area. There were tons of soccer games, and they were very well regulated, though not officially, within the community, right? Yeah. The men have been playing these more informal games for decades, these really lively games. And uh, the local community was able to acquire some funds to build a beautiful turf soccer field in 2005. And at the time, uh, it was the only kind of freely accessible turf, artificial turf soccer fields. And uh, I think a lot of the local residents built it in hopes uh, uh, for their children to use. And I think they underestimated the uh, appeal and attraction that this field would have for residents throughout the city, specifically uh, Latino men. And uh, once the field opened, there was just this huge kind of uh, interest and many, many more players came to play. And uh, as a result, they They had to come together to make a more organized game, which involved jerseys, timed matches, referees, kind of a winner stays structure, which would often result in five or six games per day during this midday hour around 11 noon, uh, Monday through Friday. Tell me something about who these people were. Tell me about the players, their experience in West Los Angeles. Yeah, so so the majority of players were from Latin America, most from Mexico and Central America. And uh, most of these men came over in their early 20s for work. Others, many, there was many Salvadorans that were fleeing civil war in the mid-1980s and 90s. But there was also what was fun about these games is it also attracted a wide diversity of players, some from South America, but the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, a few scatterings of uh, second generation Latinos, uh, but also whites and African-Americans and Asian-Americans as well to these games. Was it more than just the soccer games, although those were the joy and the focus? Yeah, I think that the soccer games were really kind of the anchor of park life through which other activities spilled out. And uh, the big activity that I spent a lot of time uh, researching was uh, some of the beer drinking that would follow and just kind of the hanging out and socializing that would often follow the soccer games. And what was fun about the soccer games is it attracted a lot of players, but also men on break, you know, on their lunch break or off for a few days who couldn't play soccer, either they were too old or they were injured or didn't really enjoy it, but they could still hang out in that space, cheering on the game, sometimes acting as referee, and certainly uh, hanging out with the players afterwards as they they rested and relaxed with others. I love you saying I studied the beer drinking. (laughs) I bet you did. And (laughs) 
Describe a little bit of the beer drinking culture that accompanied the joy of soccer playing and socializing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I would often get a a lot of uh, side eyes when I would explain my research of playing soccer and drinking beer from others. Uh, The purpose really for most people was not to get drunk. And most men did not get drunk. It was more of a way to be with others. And it it made it feel like things were kind of happening. And it provided a certain kind of rituals and schedule to their socializing, which first started with collecting money for beer. And this often involved people putting three to five dollars in. And depending about the amount of money that was collected, somebody would go to buy a 12 pack, two 12 packs, and then they would bring it back. And what was really fun and important for the group life is that there wasn't a direct correlation between how much money you put in and how much you drank. It was much more communal, (laughs) uh, which allowed kind of everybody to participate. And again, there was many men who did not drink uh, who would still participate in that space. I really enjoyed your descriptions of how they kitted each other in these after soccer game socializing events. Would you read a little bit of it from your book to give people the flavor of how It was more than soccer, and actually something important was happening about venting and communicating about work. Sure. That afternoon, Polo was complaining about an overbearing supervisor and claimed he was prepared to quit if he persisted with his blankety-blanks. When somebody questioned his seriousness, Polo replied that he could find work at another restaurant in the blink of an eye. Aranya told Polo he should be thankful he had a job, as it had been over a month since he himself had laid tile. Valderrama, a general handyman, commented that there was plenty of work in construction as long as you are willing to work for cheap. Barba challenged these familiar gripes. There is work, but Aranya doesn't want to work. He prefers to drink for free in the park. Aranya fired back by pointing out the precariousness of Barbara's own situation, who, despite working full-time at a supermarket, was sleeping in his effing van. What was important about the park is the park became... One way, a place to find uh, employment opportunities. The men were often referring each other for jobs or hiring helpers at the park. And this became really important in a very competitive labor market. But the park also became a place to pass the time. So many of these men were independent contractors, if you will, and uh, they would have some stretches of, you know, uh, of lack of work. And the park became somewhere to go when they weren't working in the same way actors, out of work actors, Actors would go to coffee shops in Los Angeles. And finally, the park also, because a lot of this, you know, were were difficult, uh, you know, some would consider low status jobs, whether in restaurants or, or cleaning or gardening, that the park became a place where they could kind of be somebody in a way that they weren't always, uh, you know, necessarily valued uh, in these ways at work. So what was the complaint? Why were the mostly white neighbors to the park embracing these people as workers, but really daunted by all the comings and goings in the park. Well, I think, um, you know, in in their defense, if you will, uh, the the park was attracting a lot of, and this is an issue in Los Angeles, just a lot of activity that was creating some noise, some traffic, some garbage, uh, parking issues that was kind of based in the park at large. But their attention really focused uh, on the soccer field, in part because as I was doing the research, that it was seen as this kind of stigmatized outsider, this threatening that Trump later would refer to kind of as bad hombres. But really, a lot of these concerns and having spent years in the park were, you know, there wasn't a lot of violence. There was not a lot of problems. Uh, Some of these things were very much exaggerated, that they were just unhappy about the activity in the park. And so what transpired were a series of meetings of complaints by the neighbors surrounding the park that we want to control the park and limit a lot of this immigrant activity there. Yeah, and again, it, it's there was many people that were opposed to their neighbors' complaints. So this created a conflict within the neighbors that they were painting the neighborhood as racist, as, as xenophobic, and uh, many neighbors were upset about their other neighbors' objections to the soccer field. And so this really kind of spiraled a bit out of control in a lot of different community meetings, which ultimately resulted in fencing in the soccer field, which before it was kind of freely accessible. But what was also important is that 
you know, although they spoke about the Latino soccer players, uh, often sometimes in very charged way, there was very little communication and contact between the two groups. And more importantly, very rarely were the soccer players invited to these community meetings to voice their explanations, to voice their concerns. And, uh, you know, part of the the motives of this book or the, or the book that I wrote was to kind of shed light on a scene that these neighbors and others really see from afar, but don't fully appreciate its meaning and order and significance in the lives of uh, the participants. In the end, did the fence kill the joy? Um, no, uh, because as I mentioned, that uh, it didn't really impact uh, the men I was spending time with who used the, you know, uh, in the middle of the day. It, it didn't really impact their joy. And what was fun is that the men were constantly layering new dimensions of information and history and biography. So the fence just became one more thing to have fun with and play with. So there'd be references of the border and uh, this was a way to keep out immigrants, although it had no real impact on them. So it just became one more layer of fun added to uh, the daily gatherings. What do you take from your immersion in that culture? Do you feel like you glean some wisdom from having been immersed with these guys in Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, many of lessons and um, how much parks matter and how they provide this real important resource for people to be able to come together and do things, uh, have fun, uh, as you mentioned, spark joy. Parks are, are really fundamental to, uh, to a vibrant city. But I also learned that these things don't happen automatically, that it takes work to pull off a fun and orderly pickup soccer game, uh, beer drinking session, uh, that these things take coordination, they take creativity. And uh, I, I really saw firsthand all of the work the men did to, to accomplish these fun and joyful soccer games and post-match uh, gatherings. Sounds like there weren't many women involved. No, there, there was not. This was a, a, a pretty, uh, uh, you know, if you will, a masculine male space. Uh, the women in the men's lives, they weighed pretty prominently as well, namely in that many seemed to be upset about the amount of time the men spent there. So I'd often see the men kind of negotiating. <laughs> um, and every once in a while, a, a partner would show up to uh, retrieve their partner uh, to bring them home. <laughs> David Truey, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It's my pleasure. Thank you. David Truey is a sociology professor at James Madison University and the author of Football in the Park, Immigrant Soccer and the Creation of Social Ties. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Many African-American intellectual and civil rights leaders were Freemasons. For instance, W.E.B. Du Bois, Thurgood Marshall, and Medgar Evers were all Freemasons. But little has been written about the role of Black Freemasonry during the civil rights movement. Derek Lenoyes is a history professor at Norfolk State University and a fellow at Virginia Humanities. He says African-American fraternal organizations like the Freemasons offered a safe space where black men could meet to plan the resistance against racial oppression. Derek, did you ever know about the Freemasons when you were growing up? No, I did not know about Freemasonry or any fraternal organization until I made it to college, actually. When I came to college, one of my best friends, he knew going through the door that he wanted to be a member of Omega Psi Phi. And in that first week of school, the Black Greek-led organizations help people move in. They put on little shows. But I distinctly remember walking towards the university center, and they were singing one of their songs. And it made me say, wow, that is amazing. And so from learning about Black Greek-led organizations, I then learned about Black Freemasonry. What was that song like? Was it many voices and beautifully sung? So, yes, and so one of the things that uh, the Black Relay organizations do, especially then, they took from Negro spirituals, and so it sounded really familiar because of that using of those Negro spirituals and that call and response, and so it was very distinctive, and it, it very much stood out, not because they were great singers, but because of being rooted in African-American history and culture. 
And it must have been thrilling that they were all guys. Yes. So part of my biography, I've never met my father as a conscious thing. So I grew up in a household of nothing but black women. I would tell people all the time, I don't get along with guys. <laughs> I don't get along with dudes, right? I don't, I don't like them, right? But then this fraternity world opened me up to my peers in ways that, that the way that I grew up didn't. And as time has gone by, you realized what an important part of your social life this is. Oh, becoming a member of Prince Hall Freemasonry truly was life-changing for me. It set me down on a road to where I am literally right now. Without joining this organization, I would not be where I am. It taught me so many things that some of the things I already knew, I just didn't know I knew. And the, but other things, it was brand new about what it meant to, to, you know, how to navigate this world, how to be a black, you know, young black man to being a black man that I just did not get. And so it, it truly changed my life. And so I cannot speak more uh, glowingly about it. And when you say Prince Hall, you're talking about a chapter of Freemasonry that was founded before the American Revolution. I am. And so the original name of it is going to be African Freemasonry. And so on March 6, 1775, Prince Hall and 14 others were initiated, passed, and raised as Freemasons. But the interesting thing about that story is the fact that they were fighting on the side of the Continental Army or the Revolutionaries, right? But people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, their peers, are also Freemasons. But George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were racist. And so they didn't believe, and their, their white counterparts as well, did not believe that African Americans should become Freemasons. And so they refused to initiate these black men. Even though they were fighting together. Even though they're fighting on the same side, right, for this ideal of democracy, for this ideal of freedom, right? They, they're fighting for this together. However, they could not become Freemasons. And so Prince Hall and these 14 others had to go to the enemy camp to be initiated. And then once they were initiated, the enemy camp gave them this concept called dispensation, gave them the ability to go out and then form their own lodge. You mean the British? The British. The British gave them the ability to go form their own lodge. But their countrymen would not allow them to become Masons. Talk a little bit about what this fellowship of men gives to its members and what it does. What kind of masculinity takes place there that is so important to the brotherhood? I think it is fundamentally important. These organizations allow for the congregation of Black men without fear of death, right? that when there's too many black men together, they can be broken up by the police and these other kind of things. And so we see this historically, right? And so what does it mean to be a black man? How do we navigate this public space? But then in these very private spaces, how do I get to be my authentic self? Joining Prince Hall Affiliated Freemasonry allowed me to learn so much more about the diversity of what it means to be a black man. And that's the thing, because when we think about masculinity, it is so rigid in placing us in these boxes of saying, you have to do this, this, this. You got to be a breadwinner. You got to be a protector. You got to, and you got to do it a certain way. When, when I became a Prince Hall Mason, I got to see these people that I called me. Now, some of them were just a couple of years older than me, but they just seemed so wise, right? <laughs> but it, it allowed for me to find who I am through the organization. And so having these conversations around real world, real life things that as, as an educator, I get to have in my classroom, but outside of that, you know, an educational space, we don't really have, especially as black men, we don't have, because of the economic depression and oppression that we've experienced, we don't get to have gentlemen clubs where we get out and have these kind of meetings. It's these fraternal organizations that allow for these conversations around shaving, right? I didn't have, I, I never had anybody to teach me how to shave, but now I have this fraternity of men 
who were teaching me not only, you know, ideas of shaving and these other kind of things that now I'm I'm teaching other people who now, because like now, because I've been shaving my head bald for 20 plus years now as a fashion statement. But now that some of my friends are going bald, right, they want to learn how to shave their head and, and I'm teaching them, right? And I'm paying that forward. And so it is amazing to be a part of a fraternity that's been around for over 225 years. Once you entered that world, were you surprised to realize how many other Black men across the country were also part of it? I tell people this story all the time. I majored in history in undergrad, and I didn't learn one thing about these organizations. But when I, beca- when I was going through the process of becoming a member of Prince Hall Affiliated Freemasonry, I had to do a lot of research, right? They made us do research. We had to write papers and all this other kind of stuff, right? And I was learning all of these great black men who have been in this organization and all the things that they had done. And I'm like, either my organization is lying to me or my degree is lying to me. <laughs> I came to find out my degree lied to me. They did not let me know people like Martin Luther King Jr., Jesse Jackson, Michael Jordan, and I can keep on naming a whole bunch of black men, right, who are in some black fraternal organization and not one time did they mention their affiliation with these organizations. As you started delving into this history, you found that black fraternal organizations and Freemasons were vital during the civil rights movement, but so little has been written openly about what kinds of activities they engaged in. The study of African-American fraternal organizations fell out of favor in the 1970s. But it was always in our face. It's just that because no one pointed out. And so I think about Megger Evers. Megger Evers, who was the executive director or secretary of the NAACP in Mississippi before he passed, the NAACP was under attack. And because they were under attack, I think in the state of Alabama, they uh, actually banned or outlawed the organization. And so Mississippi, with Megger Evers at the head, to stop it being from outlaw or under attack or people being too scared to join, they moved the NAACP state chapter into the Prince Hall Grand Lodge where it is to this day. And so when we look at where the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, so if you listen to Fannie Lou Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer gave this interview where she was talking about where the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party got its start. It was in that same Prince Hall Grand Lodge, and she names it, right? It's just that it, it was right there in front of us, and we just refused to see it. Prince Hall Freemasonry played a major role in the civil rights movement. The SCLC original headquarters was in the Prince Hall Grand Lodge on Auburn Avenue, not inside of Ebenezer Baptist Church where King's father was the pastor. And so Thurgood Marshall is a Prince Hall Mason. He also got the organization to give funding for a couple of his pet projects, including that led to the Brown decision. He even accredited the organization's participation through his ability to hire some uh, lawyers uh, to work under him to Prince Hall, uh, the organization, on why they was able to bring down the Plessy decision, right, and get the Brown win. And so it was in our face. And and at the time, everybody knew it. It was an open secret. So during Jim Crow, the Freemasons were segregated like much of the rest of the country, but they thrived. Was there pushback from the white community against the power of the Freemason chapters? Yes. And so so during enslavement, the black church and black fraternal organizations were outlawed in the South. The only exception was Louisiana allowed Prince Hall affiliated Freemasonry in it in the 1830s, I believe, instead of. But the, the, the rest of them came in after the ending of the Civil War. Once they come in, African-Americans organizing because the majority of African-Americans were in the South and has always been in the South, they were able to, although they had little to no money, they were able to pull their resources and build million-dollar institutions. 
And these institutions were for the entire community. And it's really interesting. After the Plessy decision where, you know, quote, unquote, separate but equal, and you had a black Freemasons, you had white Freemasons. You would think that would be the idea. Like you, you, you would think they will. The whites will point to it and say, "This is exactly how segregation should work." You got a black one and you got a white one, right? And they're separate but equal. But that's not how they went about it. They actually tried to ban. Well, not, they didn't try. They actually did it. They did ban any African American from being a part of any organization that a white man belonged to. Not that they were in the same organization, but they, they could not have the same nomenclature or names at all. And so, but before they did it legally, they first did it socially. And so they would attack any African-American who was wearing paraphernalia of Freemasons, Odd Fellows, Elk, Shriners, they would attack them, right? They would attack the lodges. And then they created laws to say it was actually against the law for any African-American to, uh, it was led to, to some being arrested for wearing their insignias and these other kind of things and, and having uh, the signage up and stuff. Is Freemasonry still popular today with your peers? Yes. And so that's one of the more interesting aspects is that Prince Hall Affiliated Freemasonry is still growing. It still has young membership. The white counterpart, they have the money, but they don't have the membership because of the, the way that they are set up more like social and networking. Whereas because African-Americans are not free still, there is still a need for black men to come together and learn from one another. And so we still have thousands, probably over 100,000 members in the United States alone are being initiated into an organization that's teaching them how to be in conversation and connected to black women, black children, humans, non-human animals, the environment, our spiritual belief systems, and to the universe, right? It, It really is teaching us our place in this world, but centering our conversation around what it means to be a black man. Derek Lenoise is a history professor at Norfolk State University and a fellow at Virginia Humanities. Boys learn what it means to be a man from a variety of sources. And for many boys, one of the biggest sources today is video games. Mark Willette is an English professor at Old Dominion University and the author of Playing with the Guys, Masculinity and Relationships in Video Games. He says video games take the player through what he calls a life course in masculinity. Mark, what kind of masculinity are boys picking up from video games? I'd like to think they're picking up multiple and simultaneous kinds of masculinity from the toxic masculinity we hear probably too much about all the way down to nurturing masculinity and a host of other masculinities. One of the uh, more intriguing missions that you have to do in Grand Theft Auto 4, for instance, is you actually have to rescue a homeless child and bring the homeless child to safety. And that that in and of itself stands as a a counter to the idea that Grand Theft Auto is entirely about, you know, the violent, toxic masculinity. In fact, there's a, a host of paramedic missions in, in Grand Theft Auto, um, firefighter missions you have to do, different things like that. But uh, a more involved game like Skyrim from the uh, very popular Elder Scrolls series has a, a host of, you know, different kinds of nurturing masculinities that go on where you where people go from being just sort of helpless children all the way to adults and and are helped along along the way uh, through the game. And then in our house, one of the most fun ones we play is, is Portal, which has sort of a, a comedic take on masculinity, um, where you're, you sort of have a collection of uh, bumbling sitcom dad sort of figures in it. So you're saying boys are actually learning various traits, not just the worst ones, but various traits of masculinity as they grow up through playing video games? I think so. I, I, and I think it's a continuum. It's a spectrum. 
masculinity doesn't exist in a vacuum. Masculinity is subject to change. Different eras will, will highlight different kinds of masculinity. One of the things that's happened, though, is that as technologies become more prevalent and technologization has impacted things and different kinds of inclusive design to let more people be able to do more kinds of jobs. The, the sort of the idea of a built bodily masculinity where you have the, the traditional, you know, large biceps, large chest and brawn and strength, that one's going by the wayside. In an awful lot of occupations now, the, the heaviest thing you have to lift is actually just your mouse or your cell phone the sort of demands of masculinity, the expectations of masculinity haven't really changed, but the actual performances have. And so there's a host of contradictions um, that are still being played out. That's the, that's the challenge right now, that these things are still sort of teasing, teasing themselves out. So how do you see this boys becoming boys from very young to maturing happening through video games? Well, that's one of the that's one of the fun things. Video games uh, at the time of writing represent about a forty three billion dollar a year industry, and that's grown. It's probably last I saw, it's well over fifty billion dollars. Video games first outsold Hollywood decades ago, so it's becoming a, an increasingly important way of of just accessing popular culture and the stories that we tell. The other thing that happens in video games is that very often a video game you start with being helpless, almost a child. And some video games like Fallout is, is a terrific example. You literally do start out as a child and then you have to be taught and learn and then you become an adult and then you have all of this sort of adult contacts, adult um, engagements. You have work and sorts of different experiences and then you die. Um, you die a lot in video games. So I came to the conclusion that video games offer actually a life course of masculinity, which isn't really surprising. How many stories do we have that you, you start out as a boy or, or a child and then you work your way up to adulthood? And so, so it's that sort, of, that sort of thing. From your own experience, do you find that video games actually also do teach positive masculine traits that really do help kids mature? Well, there's a host of different video games, and, and, I, and I think we also have to look at this within sort of the idea of, a, of games as being a continuum, that they're not all good, they're not all bad. I've been playing uh, Never Alone and Long Dark with my kids lately, or we've been playing Minecraft and City Skylines, and these are very different kinds of games. And Minecraft is sort of one of my favorite games to actually tease apart and pick on, because if you, if you read the literature, Minecraft is the best educational game ever. But if you play it, Minecraft is just strip mining and pushing out the villagers and colonizing. And it's turning you into a, a very productive worker. And I say that not to, not to say anything bad about, go ahead, play Minecraft. You can have fun with it. But at the same time, if we're, if we're going to find the sort of negative things in games, let's not cherry pick. And I'm, I'm trying not to cherry pick the positive things as well to acknowledge that there are also always going to be these sorts of fundamental challenges of uh, portrayals and representations within games. Who is playing video games together in your family? Are these your wife and boys? We have a 15-year-old uh, daughter and a 12-year-old boy. And, and truth, when we play team deathmatch, the 15-year-old the is, is the best. She is absolutely nightmare <laughs> if, if you're playing a team deathmatch against her. Do you think with more and more female gamers that the video games are becoming less of a masculine space already? Do you see any of that change now? I see some of that change. One of the things that's, that's interesting is to see the, the interpretation of what a gamer is or what a game is, is also a source of some controversy that people will decide, okay, if it's on a console, it's a game, or if it's on a computer, it's a game. But if it's a mobile game, it's not a game. Or if it's solitaire, it's not a game. Or if it's a hidden object game, it's not a game. It's got to have, you know, a shoot 'em up to be a game. So, so it also depends on what we're categorizing as games. And so I think a lot of gamers are actually overlooked. But as, as we know, the overall numbers of reported women gamers continues to grow. And that, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be surprising at all. You know, looking back on your own life through gaming, were there valuable life lessons that you're grateful to 
for having had that community and that trajectory in your own life? Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, actually, I can, I can give you one really quick, is that I learned about masked practice, which is the idea that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, whether it's shooting free throws or trying to do a speed run through a video game, if you, if you continue to do it too many times, at some point, you'll actually start taking shortcuts and you'll actually get worse. And so for me, that was really important in terms of also recognizing uh, in my children, okay, when are they getting mass practice? And also as a basketball coach, recognizing when my players were getting mass practice or recognizing when I'm getting mass practice. But people ask me, why do you let your kids play games? And I said, because there's a reload button. Because my kid needs to learn sometimes that failure isn't the end of things. That, and I'm not saying that, you know, learn from your mistakes uh, is the best way. That's not always the best way to learn. But there is that opportunity to, to get back up from the mistake or to cor make corrections, make mid-course corrections, that there is the, the reload button. Mark Ouellette is an English professor at Old Dominion University and the author of Playing with the Guys, Masculinity and Relationships in Video Games. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. 